Good morning, church. Man, it's so good to see you. There must be a game at noon. First service is packed today. We're going to have four people in the 1045. Well, good morning. Welcome to Discover Church, man. It's so good to see you. Thank you for spending part of your Sunday with us. If I have not had the chance to meet you, my name is Jernigan, and it's my joy to be the pastor here, and I'm so glad that you're with us this morning. You have caught us and come to us on a Sunday where we are uh, smack dab in the middle of a series called Never Settle. This is a a series where we are um, looking at the vision of our church and and what our next steps are as a church. If you're new with us um, or if you're new to church, if you're new to faith, uh, man, I'm so glad that you are here. It's not an accident that you're here. You may be wondering, why am I here and what exactly is going on? Um, Why why are we doing all of the singing and the hand raising and and all of the things? Um, But man, I just want you to know, I'm really glad that you're here. You are who we started this church for. We started this church to reach people who were not really connected to church and maybe had questions or issues or hangups with God, and I'm glad that you're here. And today I want you to know that even though we're talking about a vision series for our church, and you may be thinking, I don't really know that I care so much about what the vision of the church is, I'm just here today, Um, I just want you to know that today we're going to be reading uh, an account from the Bible of a real woman who had an incredible encounter with Jesus, and because of this encounter with Jesus, her life was radically and forever changed. And as we talk about this today, it's my hope that that you wouldn't lean away because we're talking about vision, but that you would actually lean in and ask yourself the question, is it possible that what happened in her life could happen in my life? Because I believe today that, that you will see that the same power that Jesus had then to affect people's lives is still available and accessible to us today, and I believe it's accessible to you. Now, if you've been a part part of church for a long time, if maybe you've been following with Jesus for a long time, I don't know um, how how you feel about this, but but sometimes when I get caught in the in the you know just the rigors of life and the mundane things of life, sometimes I can kind of forget that that it's a it's a good thing to be a child of God. Sometimes I can forget how it felt when I, when I became a Christian. Sometimes I can forget what it was like at the start when I started this thing. And, and one of the verses that encourages me and challenges me at the same time is this verse in Psalm chapter 51. And it says this, give me again the joy that comes from your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Now, here's the thing. What I find is, is that the less, the the more I forget about the joy of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what it meant the moment that I became a son of God, the less joy I have about that, the less likely and less willing I am to obey God in the, in the day-to-day things of life. And so this verse is challenging us. The writer of the psalm is, is challenging us that, 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 that we need to allow ourselves to go back to the start where it all began. Allow ourselves to go back to the start where, where our relationship with Jesus began. Go back to that place where we, where we knew that we had that something changed, something different, something, something adjusted in, in, in my life and in my world. And, I, and maybe you were able to, to describe it. Maybe you are able to put a finger on it. But for a lot of people, it's hard for us to fully articulate and describe the moment and and, and what it felt like and and the experience of the moment that we went from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. 
And so what I want to do today, for those of us who have been followers of Jesus for a little bit, is I want to take us back to the start. And here's the reason why. Jesus describes salvation like this in John chapter 3, when he said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What Jesus is doing here is he's taking our understanding of physical birth and and our understanding of kind of how that happens and what's going on there. He takes our knowledge base of the physical and he uses it as the canvas to help us understand the spiritual. And what Jesus is saying in this verse is that, listen, it's not about behavior modification. you, You don't evolve into a relationship with Jesus. There is a moment where you breathe and you become physically alive. And in the same way, in your soul, in your spirit, there's a moment where you become alive in Christ. There's a moment the scriptures talk about the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. And in that moment, all of our past and guilt and shame was gone. First Corinthians says it this way, that we become a new creation. Behold, old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so what I want to do today is I want to take us back to the moment. I want to take us back to the start. And if you would, just for a minute, I promise this isn't going to get weird, but would you just close your eyes just for a minute? Because I want to, I want to take us back to that place. Where were you when you asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins for the first time? And you ask him to, to come into your life and, 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 to, and to be your God and your Lord. What was the setting? Were you by yourself? Maybe you're in a church service. Who's who's around you? What do you see? Now I want you to I want you to rewind the clock just just a few moments. What was going on just before that moment where you cried out to Jesus? What was happening in your life? What were you going through? What burden were you carrying? What hardship were you facing? And now I want to fast forward the clock just a moment. After you prayed to receive Jesus as your Savior, who is the first person that you wanted to tell? And how did they respond? Were you nervous to tell them? Were you excited to tell them? Were you scared to tell them? And then if the, if the first encounter of you telling someone wasn't positive, I want you to think about who was the first person that was excited for you when you told them the decision you had made for Jesus. Do you have the moment? All right, let's open our eyes and let's open our Bibles to John chapter four today. Because what I want to do today is I want us to read this story in John chapter four. Sometimes we have the perspective of reading the Bible from this very distant third party perspective. But today what I want to do is I want to, I want to place ourselves in the story today. If you have walked with Jesus, I want, to, I want you to see yourself in the story of, uh, of the things that happen here and how you felt as you see how, how this woman responds. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to place yourself in the story to see what's possible. 
Because what we're going to see today in John chapter 4 is an is incredible story of a woman whose life is radically changed. She is outcast. She is downtrodden. She is not a part of the in crowd. She's not part of the in group. Um, she she has, has made some decisions. And, and, and in this case, she's made a series of, se- of, of several decisions that have positioned her to be uh, in a very unfavorable place with God and with others. And we find this woman in John chapter four, and as we do, we realize that Jesus has come out of his way to meet with her. And that regardless of her past choices or her current circumstances, Jesus wants this woman to know, Jesus wants you to know that the God of heaven sees you, knows you, loves you, and wants something better for you. We're in John chapter four today. If you're with me this morning, let me hear you say amen. John 4, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his sons. Now, provide a little bit of context here. Jacob is the, is the man who became known as the father of Israel. He had 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And, 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 and all Jews and all Samaritans, these are kind of two different groups of people that are right next to each other, they all acknowledge Jacob as the father of their people. In other words, the Jews and the Samaritans Samaritans, they have the same family tree. Verse six, now Jacob's well was there and Jesus therefore being wearied from his journey sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. It was about noon. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. A little bit of context here. The Jews and Samaritans, they had the same family tree. They come from the same bloodline. But for decades and generations, the Jews have looked down upon the Samaritans and the Samaritans have hated the Jews. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I want you to notice what Jesus is doing here. Jesus, he, he, he references the physical once again to try to help this woman understand the spiritual. Verse 11, and the woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw with. She's only able to think from the physical. And this well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? She's unaware of what Jesus is doing. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. He points to the well. He says, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. He's trying to help this woman understand that you have come here today to get water from a well, and at the end of the day, your pot is going to run dry, and you will have to return tomorrow, but I am here today to tell you that what you are truly longing for, what your soul is truly thirsty for, I and I alone am able to provide it to you and I can give you living water that will satisfy your soul and it won't be something that you constantly have to come back to to dig into to pull out of it will spring forth from you to constantly nourish your soul verse 15 then the woman said to him sir give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw she goes I'm in how do I get that sign me up you got a deal 
And then Jesus kind of pumps the brakes for a second. And it's at this moment when Jesus pumps the brakes that for a lot of people who are, who are distant from God or uh, who are angry with God or, or, or skeptical about God, this is the moment where a lot of people begin to, to, they don't really know what to do. And they begin to get this wrong perception of who God is. I want you to notice what Jesus says. Verse 13, he answered and said to her, oh, no, sorry, verse uh, 15. Nope, 16, here we go. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. So Jesus is saying, sure, that's fine. I can do that. But why don't you get your husband first and I'll, and I'll, and I'll, I'll you know, kind of show you. Now, on the surface, the woman thinks, well, he's just kind of trying to play a game. But Jesus is actually getting past the game and he's getting to the heart of the situation. And I want you to see today that Jesus looks past all of the games and the charades and the walls and the barriers that we throw up, whether we're following God closely or we're far from God. We all have a tendency to play these games. We have these tendencies to put up these barriers. But I want you to understand today that Jesus is the lover of your soul and he cares too greatly about what's going on in your life to play these games with you. He, he just immediately skips past the games and he says, verse 18, um, 17, sorry. The woman answered and said to him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have said, well, you have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. Now this is the moment, this is right here where truth begins to hurt. And the problem for a lot of us is, is that in these moments, we have a hard time being able to deal with the hurt of the confrontation of truth. But here's what I need you to understand today. Jesus is not saying this and bringing up her story in order to condemn her for what she's done. This is what, this is what the problem is. We misunderstand why God allows us to be confronted with the truth of our situation. We so often believe that God is this cosmic killjoy in the sky and he's just wanting to smite you and condemn you. But Jesus said that I did not come into the world to condemn the world. I came so that the world could be set free. And if we can't talk about facts, we can't have an intelligent conversation. And if I can't have an intelligent conversation with you about the facts of the things that have shackled you and bound you and have buried you and keep beating you down, then you will never be able to experience the freedom that I have come to give you so that you can be set free from all of that. And so Jesus is not confronting her because he's trying to condemn her. Instead, he's doing the exact opposite. He's trying to help her understand, listen, I'm not just another dude who's trying to get a fun time with you. I'm different. Verse 19, the woman said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She gets uncomfortable. So what does she do? She tries to, to change the conversation. She tries to throw a curveball. And she does so by kind of getting back into the, the petty disagreements and bickering between Jews and Samaritans. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So here's, here's the deal. Here's what you got to understand. For the, for the Jewish people and the Samaritan people, the location of worship was just as important, if not more, more important than the God that they were worshiping. 
That for them, it was about, it was about where the holy place is because in the Old Testament, it was all about where the holy place is, where the spirit of the Lord is, where the Ark of the Covenant was, was where the presence was. And they would come near to the Ark of the Covenant, to the presence of God, to worship him. And so, so she's throwing a curveball at Jesus and goes, well, you Jews say this, but we Samaritans are doing it like this way. And Jesus doesn't play the game. He says to her, verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, up until this point in the history of humanity, you're right, it's been about the location, but but now God is doing a new thing. Now God is gonna try to help people understand that he is not just truth, he is also spirit, and he is not confined or bound by the walls of a location. Instead, what Jesus is doing is he's referencing and forcing shadowing what would happen after he dies, after he resurrects from the grave, after he ascends into heaven, once we get into the book of Acts, which is a couple years after this event happens in John chapter four, where the Holy Spirit comes and takes residence inside of people. No longer do people have to go to a holy place to be close to God. If you have been forgiven by Jesus and his, he has covered you and washed you of your sins, then you now are able to be purified and cleansed so that the spirit of God can come and take residence residence and live inside of you. And because of that now, God can finally have the fellowship and the communion and the relationship that he's always wanted to have with people. Close, intimate fellowship. It doesn't get closer or more intimate than the spirit of God coming and living inside of you the moment you trusted in Jesus for salvation. And what Jesus is trying to help this woman understand is that because this thing is coming, you won't have to go to the mountain. You can go anywhere and praise him everywhere. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. See, see the Jews and, and had, had prophets of old that, that foretold of the Messiah that was going to come, that was going to do amazing things and deliver God's people. Both the Jews and the Samaritans believed in these prophecies and they knew of the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus says to her in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. And for the first time, this is so significant that we understand this. Jesus does not reveal his true identity for the first time to a bunch of religious people. Jesus doesn't reveal his true identity for the first time, even to Jews. Jesus reveals his identity for the first time to a Samaritan who's outcast by the Jews, to a woman who's been outcast because she's had so many husbands and she's broken the Jewish law and she's an outcast in society. And he has spoken for the first time to a woman who is in that time in a male-dominated society, is, is a, it, it, um, it, women were overlooked and overshadowed and seen as having very few rights or responsibilities. Yet it is to this Samaritan woman who's been married five times that Jesus reveals for the first time, I am the Messiah. 
in this one moment reveals so much about the heart of God that his heart breaks and longs to be close to those who were far from him, either by virtue of their own decisions or by virtue of things that have happened to them that have decided that God can't be good. And we don't exactly know what happens immediately after this verse. We don't know the conversation that happens, but what we do know is that when Jesus says, I who speak to you am he, this woman believes this and she trusts in Jesus as her savior and trusts in him and believing in him as the Messiah. And I want you to notice what her response is. Her response immediately is she goes to tell others. She immediately leaves the well in the heat of the day from having this conversation that for a moment was a bit uncomfortable until she realized that Jesus wasn't condemning her. He was trying to convince her that he was something more than just a man. Notice what happens in the next verse, verse 28. Then the woman left her water pot and went her way into the city. She leaves, she leaves her water pot, what she's got, and she immediately turns tail and runs to the city. Why? Because she's got to tell somebody. I want you to notice the second thing that, that, that we notice from her response. And we're going to notice that her shame is gone. No longer does she walk around in shame as, as here I go. I'm the, all the ladies went early in the morning when it was cool to go get water when, and when it wasn't hot yet. And, but here I am in the hot of the day. Everyone sees me walking by. I'm the one with a scarlet letter. I'm the one. Everybody knows my story. Everybody knows that I've been married several times. Everybody knows that I've been unfaithful. Everybody knows exactly who I am because nobody wants to associate with me because if anybody would be willing to associate with me, it means that they are willing to to, to, to grow close to me and be connected to what I'm all about, but nobody's doing that. And in this moment, for the very first time, this woman is fully seen. And for the first time in her life, her shame is fully gone. Notice what she does. She leaves her water pot, she goes into the city, and who does she tell first? And then to the men... The men who have talked about her, the men who have, who have snickered at her, the men who have fa uh, uh, fantasized about her, the men who have gone and been with her and come back to kiss and tell their boys about, about what happened. These men, she goes to the men of the city and notice what she says, come see a man who told me all the things I ever did. No shame, no guilt. Then she asks them this question. Could this be the Christ? Gone is the shame and the reality of her decisions. Gone is the pain of her loneliness and isolation. And now, because she's had a very real, very life-changing, very life-giving encounter with Jesus, for the first time, she is without shame, she is without guilt, and she runs to the town, the very town who has ostracized her. And say, y'all gotta, gotta hear about this dude. And what was the impact of her response? Well, I mean, I, you know, honestly, when I think about this moment, I kind of think about the movie Elf. You know the scene from Elf after he goes on the date? And then his dad is meeting with Miles Finch. 
and his two crack writers that are, that are, that are trying to come up with the next pitch for the next book. And they're in this really busy meeting and Miles Finch had, you know, everything was set and he's there. And then Buddy the Elf comes storming in and he throws his head off and goes, I'm in love. I'm in love. I don't care who knows it. That's kind of how I envision this scene playing out, except she's not saying that she's in love because nobody would have been surprised by that. Like, girl, we don't know all about all you're loving. But she's running through the town. I met a man who told me everything I ever did. Could it, could it be the Christ? And what was the impact? Verse 39, then many of the Samaritans, they left the city and they came out to where Jesus was. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he did stay there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the savior of the world. What was the impact after her life was changed and she went and told somebody? The impact was that people believed in Jesus. Through one simple act of going to tell other people her story, it piqued curiosity and interest. And people's lives were changed by Jesus. And the snowball that started rolling was that woman telling them about her story. What I love about John chapter, there's so many things I love about John chapter four, but one of the things that I love the most is it illustrates how it's possible that the movement of Jesus that has brought hope and life and peace and freedom and forgiveness to billions how the movement of Jesus has been able to cross barriers and cross continents and cross oceans and cross cultural divides and language barriers. Why? How has this happened? How is it possible that almost every corner of the globe and every continent of the globe knows the name of a poor Jewish carpenter who was one of tens of thousands that was crucified by the Romans? How is it possible that they know him? Well, it's possible because he did something that dead men never do. He came back to life. And as people experience that he was the Messiah, that he was good news, that he brought good things to people's life. And as their life was changed, they just went and told somebody else about it. And they came and saw for themselves. And when they interacted and encountered Jesus, they go, whoa, he is everything that they said he was. I got to go tell somebody. This is how the movement of Jesus has advanced and spread across the globe for these last 2,000 years. It's through the power of personal testimonies of normal everyday people like this woman, like you and like me, who've had an extraordinary encounter with Jesus, simply saying, let me tell you about Jesus and how he's changed my life. For the people who are close to you, but far from God, the most compelling evidence that would convince them of the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus can do in their lives is found in you and in your story. Sure, they may come to a church service and they may, they may cross the goal line in a church service. But I want you to understand today, it's not some good preaching that draws people to Jesus. It's not great worship that draws people to Jesus. Romans chapter two is very clear. It's the goodness of God that draws people to repentance. And how do people see the goodness of God? They see the goodness of God working in our lives. 
And it's us telling them about the things that God has done in our life. I believe that if we're ever going to see our city changed by Jesus one life at a time, if the people who are close to you but far from God are ever going to experience the life-changing power of Jesus, it's not going to happen just because of Sunday gatherings. It's going to happen because the people who leave the Sunday gatherings go out into their neighborhood and they go into their school and they go into their workplace with the mindset that I have been changed by Jesus. And I've got a story to tell I believe that we've got to be motivated to take ownership and responsibility of personal evangelism. And we've got to adopt this mindset that if the people close to me but far from God, the people that I love, that I care for, the people that I'm praying for, the people that I hear about their marriage or their relationships or their finances or their, their, their struggles and, and, and it breaks my heart, if they are ever going to find the solution to the problems that they're facing, it's on me to tell my story. I don't have to have all the answers. I just got to be willing to tell my story about how I was in a thing and maybe my thing wasn't necessarily your thing or their thing but it was my thing and let me show you and tell you what Jesus did in my life and my thing. This is why Jesus commissioned his disciples in Matthew 28 to go make disciples. The idea when he tells them this is that it, it conveys this idea that as you're going, as you're on your way, as you're on your everyday living at work, at home, at school, at play, wherever, that as you're going, you're looking for opportunities to try to encourage somebody with your story about how Jesus impacted your life. It's about trying to take someone under your wing who, who, who is trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. And, and you teach them the stuff that you've been able to learn and the stuff that you've been able to experience. One of our initiatives for this Never Settle Vision campaign is that every single person in our church would be equipped for personal evangelism. This is one of the more, most central tenets to being a follower of Jesus. What's interesting to me is that we all know this. I want you to look at this, this graphic. This is a, a study that Barna did, and, and I'll just kind of show you a few things. The first thing says, part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus. Now, the orange is millennials, the blue is Gen X, the green is boomers, and the yellow is elders. And so, you know, sorry, Gen Z, you're not in here yet. But I think it's kind of interesting, like across the board, we all agree that, that we, we need to be, we're supposed to be a witness of Jesus. We also agree that one of the best things that could ever happen for someone is for them to come to know Jesus. I mean, overwhelmingly in the upper 90s, when someone raises questions about faith, I know how to respond. Again, a, a upper 80s and up, like most of us kind of have an idea of kind of like what the first step is to kind of like, how do I get started with that? What do I do? Fewer say that they're gifted at sharing their faith. They kind of know what to do or how to do it. And so when we look at this, what we, what the takeaway here is that we all kind of agree that personal evangelism, it's a critical part of following Jesus. We all agree that the best thing that could ever happen with somebody is for them to come to know Jesus as their savior. And most of us even feel somewhat comfortable about how to kind of, how, how to kind of start when people start asking questions. And so all of that is great news. But the question that I have is if, if we all agree with this, then why don't we see more people sharing their faith? Now, the statistics of this are all across the board. I read some stuff this week that says fewer than 50% of um, born-again Christians have ever shared their faith with somebody else. I read some other statistics that were much more discouraging that said fewer than 10% of born-again Christians have ever shared their faith with somebody else. Listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to beat you up today. That's not the point of this, but I'm, I'm going somewhere and I'm gonna help you once we get there if you'll just keep following me. But here's what I want you to see. 
If we go down to the next image, it says this. It is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. Almost half of millennials believe that that's wrong. Now, mad props to the, to the older crowd. Y'all are like, no, that's dumb. That's not wrong. It's the best thing ever. I already said it was the best thing ever. And so I'm not changing my opinion now. But we millennials are like, no, that's the best thing ever. But it's also wrong to hope for them to have that. Like, that doesn't make sense. Here's the next one. If someone disagrees with you, it means that they are judging you. Man, can I just tell you, I love, I love, I love the boomers and the elders right here. They're like, no, that's just stupid. (laughs) Man, I just feel like I was born in a different time. I was born out of date. 40% of millennials say that if someone disagrees with you, that's being judgment, being judgmental. And so why, why why don't we see more Christians sharing their faith with others? I believe that it ultimately boils down to one word, one word that is so crippling, one word that is a lie from the pit of hell, one word that is so destabilizing and so debilitating that it causes Christians across the globe to be paralyzed. And it's fear. Now listen, I get it. I don't know a single person and if it's you, I, you know, God bless you. God love you. But I, I am still in this category. And I don't know a single person that when the opportunity to talk about my story, to talk about inviting someone to church or to lay out the gospel of Jesus, I don't know a single person that doesn't get like a little bit of a chill in their spine when they see the conversation going that way. And so I get it. And there's a lot of things that we're afraid of. We're afraid of being rejected. We're afraid of being ridiculed. We're afraid of getting it wrong. We're afraid of saying something stupid. We're afraid of not having enough Bible memorized. We're afraid of being the reason that someone never wants to be a follower of Jesus because we screwed it up so bad. We're afraid of offending somebody. We're afraid, millennials, let me talk to you. These are my people. We are afraid that if we tell people that Jesus's way is the only way, that we will be perceived as one of those judgmental Christians and God is love. And so if God is love and I'm telling you Jesus is the only way and you kind of want to do it your way, like, like we're afraid that we're going to be associated and we're going to kind of convey this idea that God, God is not loving and God is just, you know, he just wants to accept you right where you are. And so just come on in. You don't really have to believe that Jesus is the only way. Sure, we'll take off the power of the cross. We'll take out the reality that Jesus died or the, or the power of the fact that he rose again, the fact that he loves you so much. He will meet you wherever, whenever, however you are, but you gotta know he loves you way too much to let you stay that way. And so what we millennials do is we just like, well, we, I don't, you know, I don't want to be one of those people of coming across as judging and unloving. Can I just tell you, we, we've got, I, I just, I want to disarm some things and I want to set the record straight about some things today about what evangelism is and what evangelism isn't. Evangelism is not telling people how bad they are. It's telling people how good God is. Now listen, I can can hear the people right now. Oh, no, the people got to know that they are sinful. They got to know. I mean, all my Bible thumpers, I can can feel the weight of the 40-pound Bible closing as you're getting ready to beat me upside the head with it. Because 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. So if they don't know about their sins and how bad they are and how wicked they are, 
And how will they ever be able to know how good God is? Can I just tell you, Jesus doesn't model this. He doesn't, I'm sorry, he does model this. He doesn't model what I just explained. Because who did Jesus beat upside the head? Angry church people. And how did he interact with people who were the lost and the least and the left behind? Did he come to the woman who was caught in adultery and said, I ain't talking to you. You broke the law of God. You deserve to be stoned. Come on, boys, I'll grab one with you. Let's start throwing. I'll go first. That's not what he did. Jesus always, 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 for the people in the back, always leads with grace. And then he will follow with truth. Unless you're one of his kids. And Jesus is saying, I done gave you grace, you're forgiven from it, but I'm gonna bring some truth on you right now because I'm expecting you to make some changes. Let me, let me put it this way. Evangelism isn't barking at the world because we see something wrong. It's about us passing along the good news of what we found in Jesus. You go, oh, but the Old Testament prophets, they were always talking about doom and gloom and despair. You better turn or burn. Yeah, but who was the message to? It was to God's people. Jesus doesn't model the Old Testament prophets when he's walking on the earth. He models the heart of God that has always been for more people to step out of darkness and step into light. The truth is the enemy will do anything and everything he can to cover up the truth that there is good news in this world. But it's only found in Jesus. And he will do anything and everything to keep that hidden and covered, even going so far as to convince you that you ought not share anything. Some of us might read the story of John chapter four and go, well, that was easy for her. I mean, if I'm understanding correctly, she basically was at the bottom of the barrel, so she didn't really have anything to lose. You see, I'm not like her. I, I have something to lose. I've got a relationship. I've got credibility. I've got my job. I've got my career. I've got my friends. I've got all of these. I've got a lot to lose. Okay. Let me ask you this question. Have you stopped to consider what you have to lose if the person close to you but far from God doesn't come to faith in Jesus? Because what you have to lose if they don't come to faith in Jesus is an eternity to spend with them in glory and paradise in heaven. What you have to lose if they don't come to faith in Jesus is somebody that you can lean into and walk with and grow with as you pursue Jesus together. What you have to lose is a battle buddy who understands what it's like to go through the things of life, yet have an unwavering resolve to continue to pursue Jesus. We've gotta start recognizing what we're gonna lose if they're not with us in heaven. And we've gotta start learning how to share our faith with others. But the question becomes, how? How do we do that? How do we share our faith? Well, again, let me go to some statistics here. 66% of Christians are unfamiliar with any evangelism methods, meaning I don't really know 
like, I, I mean, I, I feel like I can answer a couple questions, but I don't really know a method of kind of like, how do I start that conversation and how do I get them to the end of the conversation where they can have the opportunity to understand the choice and make a decision for themselves. 72% of Christians say, I'm familiar with some methods, but I've never really been trained in any methods. And so listen, church, we're going to, welcome to the workshop. We're going to do some training as we close this thing out today. Is that okay? Four of us. Here we go. I want to help you understand something very quickly. Jesus does not expect you to be subject matter experts in the Bible, in theology, in doctrine. Jesus doesn't even require you to have a single Bible verse memorized in order for you to share your faith. Did you know that? So let me just go ahead and disarm that fear right now. Instead, what Jesus does is he leans into the one thing in this world that you are the world's foremost subject matter expert in. And we find what he leads us in in Acts chapter one, verse eight. He says, well, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, meaning you're not gonna go by yourself. The Spirit of God is gonna be with you. He's gonna go for you. He's going to empower you. You're gonna say things you didn't even know you had in there because the Spirit of God is gonna be with you. And then here it is. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. What is Jesus calling you and expect you and demand you be the foremost expert in? It's the one thing that you are the world's leading expert in, and that's your story. There's nobody in the world who is more of an expert in your story than you. And Jesus said, listen, I just need you to go be a witness. You have your story of what you have seen, what you have heard, and what you've experienced. Can nobody tell your story better than you can tell your story? And so I'm just asking you, take your story, expert, and you go be an expert witness to the people around you. The question is, can you tell your story to others in a way that they can understand it? Or perhaps the, maybe the, the, the first question before that ought to be, do you even know your story? Listen, your story has three chapters, and this part isn't in your notes. You're going to have to write this down. This is extra, and this doesn't cost any extra. Your story, everybody's story who is a follower of Jesus has three chapters. Chapter one, let me hear you say chapter one. Chapter one starts like this. Before Jesus, I, dot, 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 write that down. I don't see enough people writing. Before Jesus, I, this is, this is who you were and how you were and where you were and why you were and when you were before you met Jesus. Here's the second chapter of your story. I met Jesus, dot, dot, dot. That's chapter two. This is how you met Jesus. This is where you were. These are the circumstances that led to you being in a place where you were willing to cry out to Jesus and ask for his help. And then here's chapter three. After Jesus, I, dot, dot, dot. This is how Jesus changed your life. These are the things that you have seen and you have witnessed in the areas of growth and change and, and mindset and approach and relationships since you have encountered Jesus. These are the three chapters of your story. And what I want to do today is I want to send you out of this place today with some homework to do three things with your story. And step number one, what I want you to do is I want you to write your story. 
I want you to find 30 minutes, maybe this afternoon after the Chiefs win and you're trying to figure out, am I going to take a nap or not? I want you to sit down for 30 minutes or maybe at some time this week. I want you to spend 30 minutes with these three chapters and I just want you to write it out. In fact, if you're married today, I want you to make eye contact with your spouse and just give them a thumbs up real quick because that's you saying, I'm going to hold you accountable, sugar plum. Here's step number two. Once you've written out your story, all three of those chapters, then what I want you to do is I want you to go back and I want you to edit your story. I want you to go back and condense it. We can get so caught up in a lot of details that don't make sense. I want you to think about, now that it's written out, I want you to think about your story through the lens of the hearer of the story. Are the details that I'm sharing, the stuff that I'm saying, does it make any sense to them? Does it, does it connect? And anything that doesn't really connect, it might be good. Maybe that's a second conversation. But I want you to, to dial it in to, to what are the things that are most critical to your story that makes your story as, as potent and punchy as possible. And as you're editing your story, I want you to think about having two versions of your story. There's the five-minute version, and then there's the 30-second version. The five-minute version is kind of like the movie. The 30-second version is the trailer. Let me tell you why these are important. Because so oftentimes we miss windows of opportunity to share our faith and share our story because we think, well, good Lord, I mean, how much time do you have? I mean, I, you know, okay, well, it started four score and seven years ago, I was, no, we, like, can I tell you part of the problem with personal evangelism is that we, we like, we, we, we don't know how to start the process and whittling it down to a 30 second version of the story will help pique people's interest and give them the option of whether or not they want to go see the movie. Here's the 30 second version of my story. I was, a, I was a baby born to babies. My parents were teenagers when I were born. They did the best they could, but they struggled mightily. They weren't nearly mature enough or ready to navigate being married or having a child. It was an ugly divorce. I moved around to all kinds of different states, all kinds of different places. I had so many different places that I called home. And by the time that I was 10 years old, I was a broken little boy looking for acceptance, looking for identity, looking for a place that, 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 that was settled and resolved. And God sent another little 10-year-old boy named Jason come walking up my driveway, say, hey man, you want to go to church? They give away free candy. And at one of the church services, I heard a message from the preacher about using geese as an, as an uh, illustration about how when one of the geese in the V kind of struggles and kind of veers off, one of the lead geese will take off the lead position and come down and kind of be the wingman for that goose to come back and help him get back into the scene, get back into the pattern, get back into, into the V. And what God reached down and told me, he says, I know that you're just 10 years old, but I know you've been through some things and I see your hurt. I see your longing for acceptance and identity. And I want you to know I'm coming to you to bring you in to the family that I want you to be a part of. That's the 30 second version. Maybe it was 42 seconds, but it piques people's curiosity to tell the five minute version. And the third step is this. I want you to practice your story. After you have told, you've worked it out and whittled it down, I want you to find somebody, a spouse, a child, a parent, a person in your small group. By the way, small groups are starting like this week. And so this is a great opportunity. Every small group person ought to be holding each other accountable this week. Hey, give me your five minutes of your story. Let me hear it. Better yet, we'll just do the 30 seconds. That's fine. 30 seconds is enough. I'll decide if I want to go to the movie and get the popcorn and the drink. 
You gotta write your story, you gotta edit your story, and you gotta practice your story. Here's why, because once you get your story nailed down, so much of the fear that the enemy convinces you that you're supposed to have goes away. Because no longer is it about filling some sort of spiritual quota or some sales pitch. It's just one person telling another person where they found hope in the dark. And when you can get past all of the sales pitchy things and you can make it personal, then they're able to see and connect with Jesus. Yeah, they're gonna ask questions. And when they ask questions you don't know the answer to, it's okay for you to say, hey, you know what? That's a really good question. Let me tell you a perfectly acceptable answer in that moment. I don't know. But don't just stop it, I don't know. Follow that up with, come and see. Because here's the promise I'm gonna make to you. As long as I'm the pastor of this church, we are going to work incredibly hard to create environments that you don't ever have to be embarrassed by. You know what I'm talking about. When you have people come over to your house and it doesn't matter if you spend all week cleaning, you see the one thing that got missed and you immediately point it out and apologize for it. Listen, we're going to do the very best that we can to create environments that you don't have to apologize to your unchurched, unsafe friends for We're going to do everything that we can to equip our volunteers to have hearts filled with compassion and hands skilled to know what to do in their roles. And every week, every single week, I will give your friend, the person close to you but far from God, an opportunity to respond to the love of Jesus. Because I believe the only way we're ever going to see our city changed by Jesus one life at a time. The only way we're going to finish our journey to see 250 people take their next steps in Jesus. The best way that the people close to you but far from God is going to have their life changed by him is if each one of us will purpose in our hearts to reach one of them that's not here. Church, it's on us. It's not on the preacher. It's not on the worship pastor. It's not on the staff. It's not on that church around the corner or down the street. It's on us. And if you're looking for some extra credit, listen, we've got some resources out in the resource center. There's a prayer guide that are going to guide you through 30 days of how to pray for the person that's close to you but far from God. We've got some suggestions out there, a bookmark called Bless that's going to give you some, some suggestions on how do you actually begin to serve and, and, and how, do I, how do I engage with people. You're also going to find something out there called Three Circles. It's a little kind of trifold booklet thing that's going to take this whole story idea and take it, kind of put it on steroids and, and put some more structure around um, kind of how do I engage and, and illustrate it from a visual standpoint of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Church, it's on us. It's on you. And as your pastor, I want you to know I'm in it with you. I've got two people I've been praying for for over, well, one of them I've been praying for for decades. One of the other I've been praying for for about two years. They've not taken that step of faith yet. I can't control that, neither can you. But I'm still praying, I'm still serving, I'm still looking for opportunities to point them to Jesus. Let's go be that kind of church today. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-4444.
816-203-1835. Again, that's the word faith to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.